Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast and our third podcast episode of 2022. My name is Samuel Nerding, I'm the Bicom's Research Associate and it's been a few weeks since our last episode so the Bicom team thought it would be a good idea to use this first episode of 2022 to take a little look back at events in Israel over the Christmas break. To help steer us through, uh, I am joined by Bicom's Jerusalem-based director, Richard Pater. Richard, thanks for joining, and I hope you had a good break. Yes, thanks, Sam, and Happy New Year to all our listeners. Yes, I think it makes good sense to do a recap, so uh, let's, uh, let's start. Yeah, great. So perhaps we should start with maybe the most recent and arguably the most dramatic development that's happened in Israel over the last few weeks, and that was a meeting between Defence Minister Benny Gantz and Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, maybe you can give us the Israeli context for the meeting. Why now? What was unusual about it? And what is Gantz trying to achieve by meeting Abbas? Okay, so first, yes, I agree. I think that is probably the most uh, substantial development in Israel over the last couple of weeks. And it's substantial, significant for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I mean, the, the, the Gantz, um, Abbas track, let's say, that's a defence minister Gantz leading the relationship with, uh, um, with the president of the uh, Palestinian Authority is entirely appropriate. Obviously, the West Bank comes under the, the purview of the defence minister. This is, their, this is their second meeting. They met in Ramallah, I think, back in August. But just to give a historical context, this is only the, the second time in 10 years that Abbas has had a meeting in Israel. The first time was about a decade ago, 2010, 2011, when Hillary Clinton was uh, Secretary of State and basically convened a three-way meeting with then newly elected Prime Minister Netanyahu. And the second time was back in 2016, when, uh, when uh, Mahmoud Abbas came in for Shimon Peres' funeral um, and then had a, had a very brief meeting with, uh, with Netanyahu on the, on the sidelines there. This meeting was held in Benny Gantz's home. Um, in Russia Iron, which is in itself kind of interesting and uh, and suggests the overall agenda of <coughs> of Benny Gantz was to kind of to make this a, to build on the personal relationship. Um, CBMs is a term we used to use around a decade ago of confidence building measures. And that's absolutely kind of the uh, the framework and the atmosphere of building confidence and uh, and focusing on uh, on security and humanitarian and, and economic issues at the meeting. Um, I, made a, I make a point of emphasising those, those three issues because the meeting, although it happened with the green light from Prime Minister Bennett, um, under the, uh, the restrictions, the guidelines, that this would not be negotiations, this would not have a political um, content to it. And so from Israel's perspective of the timing, primarily the other big issue that kind of saw, saw us into the Christmas period was this uh, slight uptick in, uh, in violence um, from, the, from the Palestinian um, terrorist groups. We saw a fatality of a, of, a, of a drive-by shooting on one of the roads, and that was a month earlier when there was another shooting in the old city of Jerusalem. So I think the timing is very much to kind of to reinforce the security coordination that, go, that takes place in the West Bank between IDF forces and Palestinian Authority security forces, and to make sure that that is kind of uh, as much in coordinated as, uh, as possible. And then the second aspects that I mentioned are the kind of the humanitarian economic aspects that Israel understands that it has a vested interest 
in supporting the Palestinian economy. And in this and in this sense, they've increased the expanded the, uh, the work permits of Palestinian workers who are allowed in, laborers who are allowed into Israel, but also these uh, businessmen uh, passes, which allows um, uh, businessmen to also also to enter freely into Israel and to uh, and to engage in engage in commerce. Um, so I think they're the kind of that was the that was they were the main focuses of this meeting. Um, and as I said, the, uh, the kind of the, the the elements in the room is the political process, which has been stagnated for for, for so long. Um, but in the guise and the, and the bandwidth of this current government, it's going to be very difficult to move forward in a uh, in, in a peace process. So what we have is a situation of conflict management, but that's being done in coordination with the Palestinian leadership as well, which is very important. Great. You um you mentioned obviously it makes sense for Benny Gantz to meet Mahmoud Abbas because it comes under the security umbrella. What kind of was the reaction inside Israel with Abbas coming all the way to Gantz's home, and kind of what? What reaction did Gantz get by, by meeting him there? Um, because some of his comments, you kind of suggested that he might have got some flack from some of his coalition partners. Well, absolutely, there is. I mean, there, there was there was definitely criticism from a variety of, of right wing coalition partners. I mean, even uh, Prime, Prime Minister Bennett has made it clear that he has no intention of meeting with uh, meeting with uh, with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, um, whilst kind of he is kind of playing in his in his view a duplicious game. He's continuing the, uh, the the process of of paying money to terrorists and to the and to the family of uh, of former terrorists, um, as well as continuing to pursue Israel in the uh, in, in the Hague in the International High Court. And so, whilst there, whilst Israeli officers and and soldiers are under threat of of uh, legal uh, examination, um, there, there's no there, that's not the behaviour of partners. So it's quite convenient for Bennett to uh, to not to. Uh, not to meet him, and uh, and that similarly that as, that attitude is reflected in other right wing members of the of the coalition. Yoas Hendel came out against it. Uh, Zev Elkin, uh, both of them in, in, from uh, from Gidon Saar's um, party. So it's kind of uh, it's it's kind of understandable, I suppose, and uh, and and to be expected. Interestingly, there were no photo ops taken in the uh, in the in this meeting. I mean, there may have been photos taken that may get released at some point but at this point at least there were no photo ops released seeing as a time not to embarrass uh, um prime minister bennett with this kind of looking looking like a kind of a, a formal meeting of any of any political process um one other just interesting nugget perhaps to uh, to, sh- to share but according to one political source that i that i, that I heard who remained unnamed speaking on army radio that basically gave a lot of compliments to ayelet shaked for her role, if you if you can understand that it's the interior minister whose purview it comes under the work permits of Palestinians, and that the Palestinians apparently were very complimentary about her, um, and so there is the speculation. Obviously, she's also part of the authentic traditional right wing um, uh, camp of this of this government. But some have suggested that perhaps the way to Bennett's uh, heart is through Ayelet Shaked, and to neutralise her was done deliberately to uh, to paint her as the far less aggressive and kind of uh, anti-Palestinian than some of her rhetoric has been in the past. Maybe she, behind scenes, behind the scenes, she's actually more open and accommodating to the Palestinians. That's, a, that's fascinating. Can we just uh, maybe just look at what um, Foreign Minister Yayla Pitt said? And I think at the, at the weekend or Monday, he briefed journalists and he was talking about why he, he agreed that Gantz should meet Abbas, but he also said that um, he wouldn't, talk or he wouldn't speak to Abbas about peace talks now as or as Prime Minister in the 
2023 rotation agreement. So what kind of, what is Lapid's angle here and kind of what are the contradictions that he has to weigh up within obviously being foreign minister and potential prime minister, but also being in a coalition with right-wing members? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, 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 uh, I understood that comment as very much kind of reflecting the political reality mm. that I don't think he wants to spook his right-wing partners or give them an excuse to, uh, to pull the rug out before he becomes prime minister and, uh, and, and break up this coalition. So he's kind of, he's playing real politics, but although his politics, as it may be far closer to, to Benny Gantz, who's also a, central, a centrist and may, and may essentially support the, the, the um, uh, two, two states for two peoples, eventually as the, as the criteria, because this is such a sensitive and delicate issue, for this coalition, which is so diverse, which has Mansour Abbas from the Islamic Party on one side to right wingers like uh, Liebman and Gidon Saar and, and Shaked on the other, that they have agreed not to pursue either annexation or kind of a peace process. So they're so they're very much in the realm of, of management. And I think uh, Lapid's comments should be understood in that context of the political bandwidth that he does, or let's say doesn't have, um, either now as foreign minister or if he was to take over as prime minister either. And Lapid has also, he's been very careful in the past statements as well, also to toe that line of, of being a centrist, not to be accused of being a left winger, which as we know is, a, is kind of the ultimate slur in Israeli politics, um, but to kind of to, to, to keep himself uh, um, balanced in that, in, in that view, also to kind of to protect his own political future. Fascinating, great. Um, let's perhaps move a bit further south and look on the Gaza border. And last week we saw a return to the exchange of fire. Um, perhaps explain to those that might have missed it here in the UK um, what actually happened. So I wouldn't, yeah, well, not necessarily. I'd call it an, well, it was an exchange of fire technically, but it was what seems to be the case was that it was an errant. Uh, um, uh, sniper fire at one of the uh, Israeli workers in the fields adjacent to the to the Gaza border, and the uh, the exchange of fire happened afterwards. Where the Israeli government policy has been that kind of no fire will be left um, without without a response. Um, this is the idea to keep up some form of of deterrence. They won't accept a trickle of rockets or kind of or in the past when we've seen the kind of the uh, explosive balloons or in fact in this case live uh, live, live live gunfire so it was met with a response um of uh, of some tank shells fired um towards the uh, towards where the where the fire emanated from and that was uh, and that would kind of reached a uh, a swift conclusion as a, as a small event it was it was understood or interpreted at least here inside israel as been not necessarily being the backing of Hamas, but I think there is a, a cloud of question mark with how much this was just an isolated incident or an, or or part of the uh, part of a part of the Hamas uh, flexing of muscles. And then obviously later on we saw missiles being fired from from the Gaza Strip, landing kind of central Israel, but on the, sh in the on the shores out into the sea. Um, what did you make of the Israeli response? It came a day later, and it came kind of fairly well known because they were quite um, clear that they were going to have a meeting about it. Did you think it was late purposefully and proportionate to prevent further retaliation? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it is interesting. So first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's very interesting that this is not the first time that Hamas has done this and also deliberately used the cover of, uh, of stormy weather to right. fire, test fire um, rockets into, into the sea for them to test, test their range, test their uh, trajectory, um, all these sort of things. Um, I mean, it seems quite clear that it was done on purpose. I mean, sometimes if you think that it's gone out adjacent 
like kind of to the seawards um, in terms of the testing. This time it was deliberately pivoted north to be uh, to be landing just off the, uh, the Tel Aviv Jaffa um, coastline. And then similar to the other fires, as I mentioned, that, uh, that Israel felt the need to respond. I don't think the response from the IDF, although it included airstrikes that looked relatively dramatic if you've seen the if you've seen the pictures but the actual um damage done i mean no one was injured there doesn't seem to be a significant damage done and so again it, it falls into the same rubric that no fire will be left without it with without a, without a response but it's very carefully calibrated not to escalate the situation either and obviously not to erode deterrence that was made in following the, the may conflict when uh when it has been, it has been fairly quiet over over the last kind of six months, and that comes to my, my other question: is that it's obviously been over six months since the new government was installed. They were installed um, fairly quickly after the, the May conflict last year. Have you noticed any kind of substantive change in tactic from this government to the previous one when it comes to dealing with Hamas? I mean, it's an interesting question, and the, and the short answer is not really. I think the security establishment very much uh, kind of dictates the pace and kind of the political echelon go with their go with their recommendations. Um, don't forget, I mean, I think, again, Egypt is always pivotal when it comes to discussing Hamas and the, the role they play as interlocutors and, and, and intermediaries between both the Israeli government and, and Hamas. Um, relations, the Netanyahu government had good relations with, with Egypt, but I think we've seen, if you remember the, uh, the charm offensive when uh, Prime Minister Bennett was welcomed um, in, uh, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, a few months ago, and uh, Foreign Minister Lapid also made a trip to, uh, to Cairo in the last month or so, that the Israel, Israel-Egypt ties are particularly good right now. And again, that's the other reason why not to escalate things, because they are trying to work out behind the teams through Egyptian mediation to reach the idea of some long-term, long-term cessation of violence. Um, obviously, we know the issues are kind of are familiar now for several years that Israel is insisting the return of the uh, the bodies of the uh, two MIAs from 2014, as well as the two um, civilians that are being held by, held by Hamas. And if only they were able to be released in some form of, of prisoner exchange, which is not going to be as expensive or expansive as the uh, as the Shalit deal we saw a decade ago. Um, but then that would allow. Israel to facilitate with the international community massive investments in infrastructure projects. So that's still the end goal. I think that was also being pursued, if I'm honest, by the last government. But I think there is an extra um, extent of, of, of goodwill being understood between, in built between Israel and the current, uh, the current Israeli government and the Egyptian, Egyptian regime, um, which is very important strategically for Israel to maintain that quiet and to keep that dialogue going so that, uh, so that hopefully um, some, some arrangement can be reached. It's certainly some an area to watch over the next, next coming months. Uh, let's move on to the political domain. Uh, the Christmas period seemed to be relatively quiet for the government in terms of political developments. Um, being obviously in Israel, is there anything that happened there over the last few weeks that was significant in terms of the future stability of the government? Um, no, I don't think there's anything of kind of super significant. Sorry, listeners, if there's nothing, nothing dramatic to uh, to report. But I'll just flag oh, up a two, two or three things for people to have on their on their on their radar to look out for. And there's a series of interesting uh, bills which are in various various stages um, going going through the, uh, the the Knesset at the moment. Um, perhaps one of the most interesting and controversial is the electricity bill, and this is about the idea of hooking up these illegal villages um, of the 
the Bedouin in the in the Negev desert in the south to the to, to the national uh, electricity grid. Um, this was being stalled for a while again by our friend Ayelet Shaked, um, who basically wanted to make sure. And I think it's really the, the the commentary here has largely been perceived that she did a a decent job at kind of hanging on to the principles that just like every other citizen, if they're going to get the electricity, then they need to pay for it as well. That it can't just be that all on the expense of the state, like everyone else pays an electricity bill. That if these people are being given it, then there needs to be some form of uh, of able for the government to be uh, for the state to be able to uh, to get back the uh, the the. Um, the, the cost of the electricity, basically, um, in spite of the fact that these villages were built uh, built illegally, but just to do it in a in a recognised and organised manner to register these things and, and basically to maintain the authority of the interior of the Ministry of Interior. That compromise seems to have been reached, and so we're expecting maybe even sometime, uh, even, maybe even later later today, tomorrow, this week, um, it's a return to the Knesset floor for the second and third uh, reading. There is also a series of bills which I think primarily are being put forward by Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party, which talks about adding to a, a, a basic law. If you remember around the controversy of the uh, of the Jewish state um, law that was passed by the by the former government, um, critics in the centre and the left kind of supported the idea that, Jew, that Israel has a right to declare itself the Jewish state, but it was missing one crucial word, and that's of equality for all the non-Jewish citizens that should also kind of be enshrined in a in a basic law. And so in, it's, it, it seems even with this coalition a little bit too complicated and controversial to do an edit and, and, re, and revisit the, the, uh, the Jewish state law. So instead, they're looking to form an extra law, which would be complementary, which will talk about equality. So I think that's a uh, that's something that's uh, important to look out for. Um, and just a couple of other developments in terms of the politics is happening actually uh, in the ultra-Orthodox uh, um, realm. Um, the Shas leader, Ariadne Derry, who is one of the longest serving parliament parliamentarians, although he took a brief break um, in the early 2000s to go to prison, um, but has been in the, in the Knesset otherwise for, for, for decades. Um, he's reached a plea bargain over some... Uh, some 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 tax issues, so that he's uh, he's going to be uh, to be resigning from the uh, the Knesset, and so presumably at some point soon there will be a new Shas leader. And also on the Ashkenazi side on, of United Torah Judaism, um, the, the the leader Litzman um, Yaakov Litzman has also said that he will not be standing in the next election. And now this is very interesting, both because they are two very dominant. Um, veteran politicians who have been in the game, as I say, for about three decades, each of them, um, and they have and they have dominated the Haredi politics, and especially over the last decade, their very close um, partnership with the Likud party. It wasn't always this way within the ultra-Orthodox parties. They were far more of a, a third party that was able to, to go with left or right-wing governments. But over the last decade, through the partly through the personality and the relationship between um, Derry Litzman and Netanyahu, they've very much been part of, perceived as this, uh, as, the, as this core right-wing uh, party supporting the satellite party of the Likud. So it's be very interesting to see who their next leader is, what comments they make, and kind of and how they position the ultra-orthodox parties going forward. Fascinating stuff, Rich. Um, reminds me of another thing which happened in the, the the opposition, and there's a bill which is at, which was sponsored by. Um, you can tell me the Likud MK. It's been termed the uh, the, the near Bakat bill. Um, oh yes. Yeah, so perhaps you can just explain to our, our audience kind of what that bill is, why it's come about, and why it's possibly 
important for the future of the Likud. Yeah, this is quite a, this is quite a funny, quirky one. Yeah, it's got the it's it's been pushed by uh, the Likud MK Dudu um, Salam, if I'm not mistaken. And basically, I mean, Israel already has quite strict um, party funding laws of how much wealthy politicians are able to put into their into their campaign and there are limitations but there is kind of a a um a loophole in the law where it doesn't apply yet to the uh, to personal fundings in primary campaigns now this is important because one thinks at some points in the next well let's say in the next 10 or 20 years um prime minister uh, former prime minister netanyahu may step down and there will be a leadership content within the Likud. And so the, the, the other rivals in the Likud are very conscious that Nir Barakat, who is a self-made uh, millionaire um, and probably Israel's wealthiest politician, has, had a, has, has the funds and the capacity to support a whole staff and team that work just on the primaries. And so what this piece of this bill is looking to do is basically to limit that funding and so to make it more of an even playing field even before you get to general elections, but for primaries as well. Um, and now this is going to be interesting to see whether this gets the support of the, uh, of the, of the coalition partners in a way, basically just to further um, twist a knife in and to, and to exasperate the, the splits, which are starting to, uh, starting to be more pronounced within the Likud party. Interesting. Something definitely to watch out for. Um, I thought we could end it on something which wasn't picked up much here in the UK. Um, it was a statement by the United Arab List leader, Mansour Abbas, which he gave, I think, in mid-December to a Tel Aviv conference. And he basically recognised, in, in Hebrew, he recognised Israel as a Jewish state. Um, what was the reaction in Israel to that, to that speech? Uh, and how significant do you think it is for Jewish Arab relations going forward? So first of all, thank you for bringing that up. I, I agree. I mean, this, this happened just before the, the Christmas period. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Bicom did did write about it. So if anyone wants to see we more, did. they can look on on the Bicom on the Bicom website. Um, but this was this this speaking at the Globe's um, conference. He followed comments that he'd already made in Arabic uh, a few weeks beforehand, where he was basically saying, kind of being, let's be let's talking talking to talking to a Israeli Arab population. When he was speaking Arabic and saying, "Let's let's be real here that the Israel is, for all intents and purposes, the Jewish state, and we're not going to change that, and we need to recognise that." Now, although this may be kind of um, obvious for some of our listeners, I do think this is super significant that you've got the leader of the United Arab List and Islamic and Islamist party with ties to the uh, to the Brotherhood, who are making these conciliatory, unprecedented statements about recognising Israel as a as a Jewish state in terms of its in terms of its national identity and national and national character. This has been one of the, when we started talking about um, Israel and Palestinian relations, this has been one of the, one of the biggest blocks that, uh, that no Palestinian leader has been able to stand up and recognize to be the formula of two, of, of two, peoples, um, two peoples for two states. Um, and, and it's that recognition that Abbas has come through, which has been so welcome and so appreciated by, by Jewish Israelis to show that you know, this, is, this is a very mature aspect. Now, by the way, when it comes to how it's being interpreted, this is kind of a, this is one reading, which I would say is part of the mainstream understanding, which has been very supportive and complimentary. There are other voices that are saying, no, this is all part of a bluff. This is, you know, this is classic, um, um, what's, the, what's the word, um, kind, of, kind of dark arts of the, 
of the Islamic Muslim Brotherhood to lull us into a false sense of uh, of complacency and comfort, and that he's doing this in just as an elephant as an as an effort to to deceit. So there are some people that still is a credibility gap of see people finding it a little untrustworthy. And at the same time, by the way, I mean there is this this fascinating debate I think going on even within the United Arab List um, and the Sharia Council of which it is answerable to, um, there's no way, that there's, it's not clear that he is speaking for every member of the of the leadership there. And in fact, the same week that he made this speech, one of the other members of Knesset made a visit to Raid Salah, who is from the northern chapter of the Islamic movement, who just came out of prison, who has been supportive of, uh, of, uh, of terrorism against uh, against Jewish civilians and uh, and kind of quite a quite a nasty character from uh, from the perspective of most Israelis and so meeting him is not is not a great sign if you uh, if your party leader is talking about recognizing a Jewish state so there are some fascinating contradictions going on within the party but for, uh, for me and my perspective I think it's uh, it's 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 well to be commended and credit to the to the brave leadership that Abbas is uh, is showing and hopefully that can kind of create further trust and understanding between um, the Israeli citizens, both Jewish and Arab. Right, Rich. Well, it's definitely an area for um, for us to watch in 2022. And as you said, hopefully it can be a, a game changer in terms of Jewish-Arab relations inside Israel. Um, I think that's probably enough for now. I hope that was useful to our listeners. Um, Rich, thank you so much for those useful insights. And for everyone who is listening, um, Thank you very much. And I hope that you find our podcast for this year useful. We'll, we'll be doing it every week. So we'll try to at least. So, um, but for now, thank you for listening. And as Richard said, Happy New Year to everyone. Absolutely. Thanks, Sam. Happy New Year, everybody. Mm-hmm.